Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from international football superstar David Beckham about his new documentary series telling the definitive story of the English Premier League. And Paul Heaney, founder of TCB Media Rights, about the collapse of the Q Media Group and his new company, Bossa Nova Media. The Premiership, A Whole New Ball Game, is an upcoming BBC Two documentary series from all three media-backed producer Story Film and Studio 99, the production company set up by international football superstar David Beckham. The four-part show promises to tell the definitive story of the English Premier League and how it was transformed into a billion-dollar industry soap opera and super brand that continues to enthrall audiences across the globe. As part of Content London On Demand, the virtual version of C21's annual international TV conference which took place recently online, Beckham explained how he became involved and the appeal of the series to him. Also taking part in the discussion were his business partner and Studio 99 co-founder Nicola Housen, plus Story Film co-founders Peter Beard and David Nath. They spoke with Clive Whittingham. We're going to be joined shortly by Studio 99 founder and former England captain David Beckham. But first, the company's MD Nicola Housen, as well as Peter Beard and David Nath, the co-founders of Story Films. Peter, David, Nicola, thanks for joining us. Could we start with an overview of the project, please? It's a, a four-part series for BBC Two, and it's largely a sort of a contemporary history box set, uh, but trying to, to do so in the most entertaining way. It uh, came about from a conversation that Dave and I had with Patrick Holland, the controller of BBC Two. We'd gone in to see him to talk about the, the types of things that we'd quite like to make for him. Um, and we we got around to talking about the success of some of the um, archive-driven stuff that they'd done recently. And we got to a point where we were talking about how we could make it as popular as possible, how we could make something for BBC Two that might compete with programmes that you're more likely to see on somewhere like Netflix. And through that, we, we got to the Premier League. And um, I mean, Patrick was, was very interested in it as being an interesting way to look at Britain, but also a way to access an audience that might typically not be watching BBC Two anymore. So he basically said to us, why don't you go and have a think about the Premier League and think about how you might be able to approach that in a way that would be exciting and tell a, you know, a history of Britain and a history of one of our largest exports and set that as a bit of a task. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the thing that we um, found qu- quite quickly is that it's such a vast story and it, sp- it spans such an incredible amount of time, you know, from 1992, that we got to the point quite quickly with uh, the commissioners, Claire Sillery and Hamish Ferguson, that we'd break it down by decade. Yeah. So so our hope is that, in fact, the four episodes in this series will just be the first of three series that will look at the entire history of the Premier League. Yeah, Dave's absolutely right. Through this sort of conversation with Claire Sillery, we started to talk about how we would do it, how we try and stop it just being a sort of survey of everything that happened in the 90s in football and how we might be able to take on a structure that, that's more like sort of compelling box set drama and slightly less like classic historical TV documentaries. Um, and Dave had the idea of, of taking the structure of something like The Crown, where you take an event that occurred and really sort of mine down into as much detail as you can in it and, and, and tell sort of everything that happened around that event rather than just trying to tell everything. Um, and then how you start to create characters that might reoccur throughout the series. And the Premier League is perfect for that. 
because it's, it's sort of, you know, it is, it is a dramatic and ongoing saga with returnable characters and sort of heroes and triumphs and failures. So we got sort of really excited about that structure, about focusing on the 90s, and it became clear pretty quickly that there were a few sort of big teams and big characters, and the most obvious of which being Manchester United, and pretty quickly David Beckham comes onto the scene. I suppose at that point we were asked by the BBC, if you're going to go for that structure and sort of characters and particular contributors are going to become so key to the telling of the story, how are you going to start to secure those contributors? I think there was there was also a sense from the BBC that if we're going to do this, it's got to be the definitive telling of this story. And if you're going to do a definitive telling of this story, then you need to show us that you're able to get the key participants in it, which was when I rang Nicola Housen. Yeah, I'd love to say that Dave rang me. He stalked me on LinkedIn is what he did. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what was weird was that, and it is a really interesting example of, we're all surrounded by teams and distributors and agents and everybody else. And so far, the two most exciting projects that we're co-producing have come in completely differently. And Dave contacted me on LinkedIn, but not realising at the time, I knew a lot of the folk at All 3 Media very well. And I've I've known Jane Turton a very long time because we were at ITV together back in the day and various other key people. So I'd been talking to All 3 Media since before we launched Studio 99. I'd been to see Jane and talk to her about how we might collaborate. And also Gordon Ramsay's a great friend of ours and his production company label is in all three media. Um, so it was sort of very natural. And Dave and I just, I think, chatted on the phone the first time. And I think the interesting connection was obviously David had a very strong view about the telling of the football story of what dramatic change the launch of the premiership was, particularly as he was just starting out his career there. But I was particularly engaged by the slightly broader story of for me as a non-footballer how the 90s really was the explosion of football becoming box office and becoming mainstream entertainment and frankly I was in the middle of it with David in that you know the day that footballer married his pop star was kind of the, the, the day that football became part of mainstream entertainment and really overlapped with the music industry fashion TV movies film it became really mainstream in British culture and, and we all just felt when we came together that that particular pivot into the story in the 90s was a really interesting one and has only gone on to grow in significance over time so we just felt we just felt very a very natural connection from the beginning David Beckham was uh, was not able to join us for, for this panel discussion today, but uh, we have spoken to him uh, in advance of the panel and uh, he can talk to us now about uh, his involvement and, as discussed, how football really became part of the mainstream culture in Britain uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, not least with, uh, with his input. You know, I was just starting my career at Manchester United and all of a sudden things were changing and it was incredible to see because obviously I had watched, you know, matches the day I'd watched football you know in all different levels and all different leagues with my dad over the years from a very young age there was so much that changed within the game within the teams within the clubs all of a sudden we went from having all English managers to having foreign managers come in we had foreign players coming in and at the start there wasn't many foreign players so to see the likes of Ginola Eric Cantona all of these players come in that's what changed it that's what changed the game you know and seeing Arsene Wenger become manager of Arsenal and everything that he achieved over his time of being Arsenal manager was was incredible. But it was little things like that just changed things. You know, I remember the theme tune, you know, Alive and Kicking, Simple Minds. That is it's one of those things. It's one of those things. It's like a, 
It's like a scent or a fragrance that takes you back to a moment. You know, as soon as I hear that song, even the start of that song, it takes you back to the start of what changed in the Premiership. You know, the marketing side changed, you know, the, the individuals changed, the clubs changed, the fans got to see so much different things going on. I've always been a huge fan of American sports, to be honest. You know, I, I love the patriotic side. I love, you know, them as athletes and I love the entertainment. And all of a sudden, when the Premiership started, it was more about box office entertainment than anything else. And I think that's what helped take the game game to a whole different level because all of a sudden it wasn't just about what was happening on the pitch it was about entertainment and people want to be entertained you know of course I grew up wanting to play for Manchester United I wanted to play for England I wanted to captain my country it wasn't about entertainment for me it was about representing my country and playing for the club that I loved and playing the game and having hopefully a long career the entertainment came after that you know I never saw myself as an entertainer I don't see you know I never saw myself as that I saw myself as a footballer but when I look back at my career and when I look back at some of the games that I played in and some of the things that I did it's entertainment and people want to be entertained you know you ask my kids these days who they want to watch you know they want to watch entertaining players they want to watch the Neymars they want to watch the Cristiano Ronaldo's they want to watch the Messi's because they're entertaining and that's when it went from being just a game to box office entertainment there's many things that excites me about being part of this series. Um, one of them is my dad's going to love this because he watches old videos of me over and over again. He only texted me last night. He said, I've just watched the game where you beat West Ham 5-3. You scored a couple of good goals and actually you played pretty well. I was like, well, you should have told me that at the time. But I think that to have lived and breathed and been part of the premiership for the amount of time that I have, you know, not obviously, not obviously just as a player, but as a fan, you know, to look over the last three decades and to watch old footage, to watch, you know, because I, I'm, I'm pretty busy. You know, I have four kids, I have obviously my business, and sometimes you don't take a second to sit down and actually reflect on some of the games that you played in and a couple of times that I got sent off or I've made bad challenges or, um, you know, scored some good goals. I don't really get time to do that. So actually to be part of this series for me is actually a little bit of a respite because then I can sit down and I can watch some of the stuff that I haven't seen for years. And also I can watch it with my kids because you know my, my boys sit down with me sometimes and watch old footage of some of the games that I played in. And they was like, dad, why is the pitch so bad? Or why is the ball bobbling around so much? Or why are you playing on, on, on ice? You know, things like that. So there's certain things that I like to reminisce on certain things and to be able to sit down with even my dad or my boys and and even Harper and watch some of the things that went, o went on in the last 30 years in the game, it, it'll be special. Guys, you say it's it's, it's a four-part show, like you, like you say. There's just so much to this. There's the cultural evolution of the country. There's the financial aspect. There's Murdoch and Sky's involvement. The Premier League and football itself is unrecognisable from 1992. I had a season ticket in the first Premier League season and have followed it all the way through. How do you go about picking what to use, what not to use, where to focus in a, in a four-part doc? It's difficult because you're going to alienate some people, whatever you do. It, it, it's quite it's quite a challenge actually taking on something that's such a huge, well-watched and well-witnessed kind of story because I think where you have to get to is you have to like choose some horses and back them in terms of the stories you go for. And those stories are the ones that we think tell the most important 
important story about the Premier League, whether that's, and it's it's like Nicola was saying earlier, it's the combination of how you dovetail the sporting story with the cultural and the business story. And there's certain sporting stories that lend themselves to that much better than others, certain footballing stories that lend themselves to that, to that better than others. So we've got four, four hours to tell the first 10 years. So you're making some quite big choices there. But I think there's certain stories that do present themselves as, as ones that you can't ignore as well. I also think, you know what you, what you said there at, at the beginning about how big the Premier League has become, sort of how, how it's it's sort of, uh, it's grown in enormous, I mean, far far bigger than anyone would have imagined in 1992. So I think that gives us a framework for the story anyway. You know, it is now the biggest league in the world, you know, over four and a half billion people watching. It's, it's a sort of true story of globalisation. So if we're looking at just the start of that, just the first decade, it's sort of what are the seeds of that and how did it start to grow? I mean, and, and luckily for us, in this sort of arc of the first 10 years, you know, by the end of it, you've got Manchester United becoming champions of Europe, winning the treble, and it's sort of being as big a deal in bars and sort of playgrounds all around the world as it is in, in Old Trafford. And that gives us a great framework. But then there's some, some other really brilliant characters and stories and players along the way that help sort of build all of that and help make it larger than the game on the pitch, as, as Nicola mentioned. So for us, it was it was what, what are the moments that we all remember and what are the significant sporting moments and what are the, the big sort of cultural movements and where do those bits collide and how can we create a story arc that allows us to explore that um, so actually for all it's massive it hasn't been that difficult I'd say I'd say that difficult it's taken us nine months to whittle it down from, from being yeah. the, uh, the original research to now but actually lots of the early conversations that we had with Nicola and, and hearing it from the sort of inside from David Beckham and from Dave Gardner you get quite a perspective on how things changed from the perspective of the player sometimes it feels like a soap uh, and I think that's quite helpful because there are central characters in a soap that you get across the first decade of the Premier League and it and you naturally start migrating towards them and they represent different things and you get things in this soap where people are successful but sometimes you want you, you're backing the underdog and those kind of tropes that you get from the soap who the villains are and how print journalism puts fuel underneath that soap as well so that it's written about on the on the front pages as much as the back pages and in that particularly in that first decade football is written about in a way that it was never written about before in terms of the column inches that you get because it's been turned into a product the show business as much as a sport and that that really helps you because the media generally are elevating it in a different way what we bring to it probably uniquely certainly uniquely in any production company that could have got involved is you know david's still in football you know, he's 45, but he's still in football. He now is an owner of, a, of an MLS team. And it's been really interesting for him. A, he's still in contact with all of the guys that he played with in that decade. And they're all still incredibly close, but they've all gone into very many different journeys. But now that he's launched his own club, I mean, I was at Spurs with him recently doing something else. And, and in fact, I was at Miami with him with Gary Neville when he took Gary into the locker rooms. And the first thing they talked about was, my God, look how different it is from when we started. And right there, you've got him and Gary back in 92 as young boys remembering what it was like and when we went to Spurs he talked to Jose about it and being able to give this really visceral understanding of how it's changed and I think the other aspect that David uniquely brought and I didn't really think about this until I started working with him more is from very early on he was traveling internationally and he moved abroad very early so he saw the premiership from an international perspective right from the beginning which 
we're now looking back on it in hindsight, we can obviously tell that story and put it in a global context. But I think at the time, with him moving to Spain in that second period, it really gave him an understanding of what the premiership had and where it was leading and how it was perceived around the world. And certainly his career in the way that it has progressed when we're in Asia or South America, anywhere in the world, you realise the potency of premiership and the way it started in that first decade. These docs often uh, hang on the access and the the people that you've got involved, as well as David Beckham. Do you want to to drop a few other names of people we can expect to see in this and and how you guys went about getting the access to them other than uh, just going through David's address book? I mean, it's mainly going through David's address book. But um, actually, I think most people that we've approached, whether they be players or whether they're people who are involved in the business side or whether they were involved in, in sort of setting up the Premier League, people like, uh, you know, that were massively important in that story, like David Dean. I think if you tell them that the BBC are doing a proper comprehensive history of the Premier League, it's something that they want to be part of. This, we hope, will be the telling of the story. So actually, I think there's there's a lot of, of gravity in that that seems to be drawing lots of people in. So they've not been difficult conversations so far, really, have they? No, I think there's, there's a willingness uh, and look, the doors are just. Some of those are negotiations that are still in process at the moment. So we, we just need to be a bit mindful of that but I think it's, it's, it's as Pete says that there's a general sense of if you are telling the story properly and definitively and comprehensively then we'd like to be part of it I mean I think Nicola that was one of the reasons that David was interested in it yeah, wasn't it I think it, look if we ended up as I say once Dave and Pete got in touch and we started chatting I felt from the beginning that it was a good project for us to become involved in as a, and help to make it but genuinely even if we hadn't been if we didn't have a production company we get approached daily for David to appear in documentaries about something or another and we say no, no to most of it, we would have said yes to this, partly because of the BBC and David's done some documentary work for the BBC in the past. He's a big admirer and supporter of the Beeb. And also it does, as the guys have said, lend an air of obvious credibility and substance to what they're trying to tackle. BBC Two doesn't tackle a subject unless it cares about it and it's going to do it properly. So I think it already had the veil of all of the right credibility around it. I think that football people are not always very trusting for good reason. And therefore, usually with football, they move as a pack. It's not an, you know, it's not an exaggeration. You know, they will always ask who else is doing things. And they're very hierarchical. So I think that the, the key element that we wanted to get to was starting at the very top echelon game, whether it was executive side or ownership or the key players was also an important place to start so that you were setting the bar at the right level. And frankly, there's lots of people who can talk about what happened and many people are involved in the game. It's very different to talking to the people who were the architects of the premiership that we see today, whether that's the structural architects behind the teams or the league itself, or the players. And this was the first generation of players that really took controlling into their own hands that had a degree of understanding of their commercial power who understood the nature of the media landscape they were going into of course this was before social media who for the first time started to aspire to potentially either play abroad or play with foreign players and so this was a really pivotal moment and these players were far more influential in their own destiny and career both individually and as a pack than they'd ever been before and so it really was the, a very significant generation in the Premier League and they're all you know if you look at all obviously we're very close with the Man United boys from that era whether they built businesses or whether they've stayed in the sport or outside of the sport 
these guys have all done well. They've all, they were all very smart about their commercial potential and about how to manage their brand and about how to embrace you know, international potential. A lot of that came from what they learned alongside the Premier League and the brands that it brought into to our market. David Beckham, Nicola Housen, Peter Beard and David Nath discussing the Premiership, a whole new ball game, produced in association with All3 Media International. The video version of that conversation is available on our website right now to C21 Pro subscribers, together with all the other great keynotes, panel discussions and premieres that were part of this year's Content London On Demand. UK distributor TCB Media Rights was among those caught up at the start of the year in the collapse of Canada's Q Media Group, and was then sold to Australia's Beyond International without founder Paul Heaney's consent. The distribution veteran has now launched a new sales outfit with business partner Dina Subani called Bossa Nova Media. He spoke exclusively to Clive Whittingham about what happened, the lessons learned from those experiences, and how they will shape his new company in 2021. Paul, it's been quite a year for you. How are you? Yeah, just a bit bored, really. It's been a really quiet time. So um, I'm glad someone interrupted me by calling me up. We're going to start at the start and uh, and work our way through uh, Paul's year. 12 months ago, Paul, heading towards Christmas 2020, TCB Media Rights chugging along quite nicely. Can you cast your mind back that far and uh, how things were going at that point? Yeah, we were on, a, on course for 22 million, actually. I think we ended up hitting 21 million turnover. Revenue recognition was as strict as ever. We were a very tight business. We had good cash. It was a 2 million profit just over looking like. And yeah, we were just planning on consolidating, not going quite as crazily for the next year. Bearing in mind, we'd just doubled in size in two years. So um, we were thinking, take a breath, consolidate. Let's see how we go next year because we had an awful lot of shows. We had to start selling as well as looking at new stuff. So yeah, it was a uh, just an ordinary Friday afternoon in December. TCB was a it was a it was a distributor. It was a financer. It was it had a quite a unique model. For those that aren't as familiar, people maybe that don't work in the factual unscripted business, can you just explain a little bit about what the company was? Yeah, I suppose we'd set out and maybe we'd sort of become a bit of a bigger beast, but we'd set out certainly to be part agent, part distributor. Uh, at the very beginning, as in uh, operating in that sweet spot between where producer wants to talk to you because of your broadcast relationships and broadcaster wants to talk to you because of your good producer relationships. So we know that that sweet spot keeps moving around because the broadcasters change, the producers change, but you've got to keep that area. So you have to stay vital. You have to stay listening to both parties. You have to employ people who are shit hot uh, and you've got a bulletproof back office and you've got no room for anything other than excellence. So that was the plan from the beginning and I think you know we more or less stuck to that but we became a big distributor beast as well so we tried to make sure we were selling shows and library you know a producer wants to see their shows sell to Erie and Jaya in Albania five years after they've uh, launched it as much as they do want to see a pre-sale to the US you know it gives them a nice warm feeling and I, and I I really know that and that that's carried me on to now as well so I'm not kidding myself it's it is it is about the endorsements the introductions the legitimacy that we would offer but it's also about cold, hard, let's look at the royalty report. Let's see how many territories. And I know that. So you sort of got to balance that up. So that's what it was. And then also with the the targets that Q had given us and with doubling in size, we had to then turn into a bit of a different beast, which is we know jack shit about editorial. We need to make that work. So bringing Hannah in and integrating her into the team was uh, another thing that we did successfully. And I think 2019 was bearing fruit on that. I think 2018, we made made a few mistakes on on that side, but you know, we, we did 
didn't just shrug our shoulders. We were determined to try and fill those holes. But, you know, it's not as easy when you're a distributor compared to a broadcaster. So, yeah, part of the part of Q Media, and it really it was around this time last year, basically 12 months ago, almost to the day that those of us in the trade press were starting to hear bits and pieces about things may not be as they seem at Q. On the inside as a company that was, was part of the group, when did you first start smelling a bit of a rap? I really only smelt it on the day that uh, it was waved in front of my eyes. Sorry to extend the analogy of a rat. But um, we got a call from one of the principals on the, I think it was the Friday, where it was going to be happening on the Monday, when, uh, or, was it, or even the day before. So yeah, all hell let loose. And producers really then started calling and emailing and contacting us in their droves, worrying about whether they were going to be paid, which was horrifying. And I felt terrible because, you know, a lot of these producers were relying on us to be paid on time because they, especially unscripted producers, they operate on such tight margins. So we had to make it uh, work and work quickly. And finance department and the whole back office, you know, you know, when I think back on it now, they had to do a tough, tough role, getting contracts signed, getting producers paid quickly, making sure that we did everything because yeah when the Q Titanic then I think so the analogy is the Q Titanic was sort of heading into icy waters but it's sort of nudged against the iceberg that day and uh, that was the beginning of a slow sinking you know till the end of March but it was um, yeah that was the beginning of every single day every evening every weekend on the phone trying to sort of uh, rectify it find out what was going on at Q get the right story uh yeah, you probably need to ask questions because there's too much to say, to be honest. <laughs> as best, well, as best as you know, what did go wrong at Q? Because it was, you know, it was high profile company, lots of good production companies. Yeah, as part it of was it, big names. It, yeah, it was the over, it was the, the hiding of a $20 million loss, wasn't it? I mean, when you think companies that came into the Q business, I know, um, you know, the, it's no secret, Content Film came in with an 80 million Canadian dollar loss on its books. So, uh, so there were a lot of loss making businesses there already and then the overhead was growing and I suppose you know I was never a fan of the two distributor business and I made my feelings very clear about that didn't make me very popular within Q but I felt unless the lines were very clearly defined which they weren't it was never going to work really well and so what happened was we had two distributors inside the group competing with each other which really didn't work at all and we had a very 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 clear focus on what we did so uh, you know it wasn't anyone's fault within uh, community distribution for example but it didn't work you know and so um it, it needed very very strong management from above to get that sorted and it needed um i suppose people to be listening to and maybe some more common sense but you know we sort of uh, in a way we had a bit of a siege mentality i think at, uh, at tcb our focus was the external market our focus was okay keep those producers happy and paid on time make sure we're doing what we can for all the broadcasters make sure we're listening to them and supplying everything and we just come off the back of the development day which was a roaring success and the team was they were just going so well so it was just a bit of a crying shame but once that that hole had been detected you know the 20 million dollar hole then yeah we learned a hell of a lot in the next sort of six months I think uh, Dean and I had to learn quickly and I think other principals inside TCB also had to learn because we did not keep any secrets as a business TCB doesn't or didn't sorry but we um, with every single change and nuance there was you know 16 17 other people in that business that were worried about their jobs as well as all the producers are worried about their businesses so we made sure as much as we could we kept everyone informed yeah we used to have absolutely regular sometimes daily you know twice daily updates on what was going on and who was going to bail us out and who was uh, what was really going on and how did it happen and, and uh, was it only you know 
um, one or two people what the hell was going on. So there was an awful lot of finger pointing going on in the corporate side, which we didn't want to uh, get involved with. We had our business to try and keep going. And as far as we were concerned, at that point in December, we were still very much successful and we were pretty confident about ourselves. We thought, well, listen, we were good outside of Q. We're going to be good inside of Q. And if we left to leave Q, we can do that again anyway. So at that point, we we probably didn't see the actual sinking of it at the end of Feb. There seemed to be an attempt to sort of pin the whole thing on a on a rogue CFO who I think was was Jeff Webb. I mean, it was a it was just a fundamentally flawed business. That seemed a pretty transparent strategy. Or am I, am I being too blunt and unfair there? No, it's good to be blunt. No, I think you're you're fine. I had a lot of Canadian producers and other producers come up to me around about the time of Real Screen saying SPACs, you know, which is a what a special. You, you probably know what that stands for more than I do. I think I've forgotten. I think I want to forget. Uh, it's a sort of backfilled business, isn't it? You um you get your funding and then you backfill it with with companies and it, it does work but in this instance uh, it didn't and a lot of producers came up to me and said we could have told you it wouldn't work and I said well I wish you'd actually told me at the time <laughs> it might have helped but um, yeah so um, who knows who knows um, there was very much a sort of uh, closed ranks there within uh, the corporate side which I was never become party to but yeah it, it did it did seem a bit alarming that they just discovered that hole because yeah we up until a few weeks earlier it had been buy more shares buy more shares so yeah it was um, that was surprising. Were you owed money? Were you expecting funds and money to come in from from Q to fulfil like your like your twenty twenty objectives? Uh, no, we were we were reasonably self sustaining because we'd already been given a, a fund by Q a couple of years earlier. So we were we were okay on that front. Personally, yes, lots of losses, but then that's you know that's the risk you take. I think, and I think um, being sanguine about it, you know, a lot of people uh, sell businesses and then don't see the um, the other end of it. So you know, we, we have to be fairly um, realistic about that. But there was a lot of need for our funds but I think Q Media Distribution had the same thing we were both uh, needed to try and top up other parts of the business that weren't working which yeah that did alarm me that did alarm me um, but you know in my naivety I thought that's just one of the, the parts of the, the business as they were growing but we luckily could sort of absorb that and keep going but that was before the, the announcement If you sold your a company again and we'll, we'll come on to the company that you've recently launched if you sold a company again what would you do differently what lessons have you learned from that whole horrible experience So uh, <clears throat> yeah I've learned a lot Dina and I have learned a hell of a lot and so have all the TCB team that were involved in this I think we have all learned huge amounts uh, the whole journey through personally the whole journey through from you know from December through till sort of middle of June I suppose there's a, a lot there so yeah I think about that all the time yeah it's sad about the TCB brand and name but you know I was the day leaving I was very sort of happy and massively relieved it was one of the most life-affirming days of my life that day when I left which is weird when you you're leaving something that you that you help set up you know so but um i think now i don't feel the same way about <clears throat> launching a brand i want to make sure that this lo- this sets down some real roots now and becomes an operator and a player in a market uh, but yeah I, i'm not i'm not so interested now in you know let's make a quick buck of those producers that we choose to work with i want to see in a few years time those producers succeeding and those producers looking back and saying oh, i'm really pleased we worked with bossanova because we're more successful and if that is the conversation that that they're having in their head or with me then we've done the right job and so and in that case the buyers will be happy because I'll have listened to them and we'll have we'll have a team that will be able to you know supply the right content to them so that's exactly what I feel so yeah if I had an, an ounce of cynicism before about how to launch a business and you know build it up and sell it that's a great story to have but I'm not so sure I really want to have that sort of journey again you know because you're at the you know we it was our you know it's our our decision we can't blame other people and I'm not blaming
blaming, I'm not blaming people at Q. Um, it happens, you know, it happens. And I laugh about it now. As one of the principals said on um, some, at some point in June, your sense of humour will get you through it. And I must admit, I laughed at that text, maybe for a different reason, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> Because I just, uh, but I, I think, um, I actually think what a brilliant experience to have gone through. And the, the longer I stay away from it now, the more hilarious and black humoured it looks and more absurd it looks. And maybe I looked, maybe I, maybe I look a complete mug for even have fallen for this whole thing. But um, we got through it. We survived. Producers got paid. Producers didn't go in, out of business. We kept the team intact. The team that we had, we kept them in jobs until we left at the, at the middle of June. So that for us, we delivered it to the buyers of the business. So we did our jobs. And so, you know, it wasn't just Dean and I, it was the other the other members of the team that had a massive contribution. So in that regard, job done, you know. Um, but yeah, it's a bit sad. But listen, distributors by nature go down. And we didn't go down because we weren't a good operation though. Um, so the brand name just isn't in use anymore. But luckily, Bossa Nova... I've loved some of the some of the the responses have been so positive about great you found a name that really strikes the zeitgeist of sort of positivity and Brazil and dancing and movement I thought yeah but it's also my favorite Elvis Presley song so I'll go with that as well but um, it's just as the most ridiculous um, name for a company I know but it was also the most ridiculous Elvis song and it always has been since I was about 12 years old so um, but I'll go with the other the other sort of more cerebral uh, meaning because I think um, we stumbled into to it and uh, the previous name that we were going to name it uh, the designers threw it out and said we can't possibly name it 252 which is what it was going to be called which is a radio station that we both worked at they said forget it and so I've already forgotten it and it was a good idea to rename it yeah you mentioned that the, the TCB name is no more and is, is has been folded into another company you did actually I mean January February we were just writing stories about how all these Q companies were you know, being taken over by other companies or management buyouts. Originally, I remember talking to you at Real Screen last January. That was your plan, wasn't it? You wanted to do a management buyout of TCB. Uh, why did that not happen? Yeah, I couldn't get away from you, Clive. Wherever I looked, you know, there you were. I mean, I was expecting That's me doing my job. Morning... <laughs> yeah, I was... one morning I was expecting to get out of my room, go into the bathroom, and you'd be there in your familiar black polo neck, sitting there, sort of drumming your fingers with the <laughs> with a tape recorder on. Oh, please, Clive, give. <laughs> arrest will you but um but um yeah it was it was i mean we were just looking at all options and because uh, you know i do sometimes view if anyone knows game of thrones there's a character i think called ramsey bolton who, who used to torture his victims by either putting a red hot poker up their backsides or castrating them or cutting their penis off or sometimes all three of those and sometimes it felt that that was happening in the early part of this year because we had queues uh, insolvency people we had the queues uh, people who were trying to sell them as well everyone had an inflated cost onto 30 million dollars was the original back in December was the uh, cost that they put on the head of TCB which you know we laughed at and said <clears throat> well no wonder no one's bought us if that's the price I mean it's just ridiculous so I think um, because we were a profitable business and maybe there were some other businesses inside Q that weren't they were trying to make, make a lot of money back by making a big sort of getting a put a big price on our heads that didn't work so uh, the the rather sort of charisma free guys at, at FTI no offense but I think it has to go with the territory if you do that job no offence well sort of offence but um, uh, they um, they just said however you do it we don't care so us buying back us finding an investor that's what we did so yeah we had some brilliant conversations and I've met some great people in that sort of X-Factor style journey but yeah it wasn't to be but yeah originally and actually when I think about it now thank God we didn't buy it back because we'd have had even more sleepless nights through the course of this year having a big overhead and, and trying to get us going and it would have been very tough and I think it's not been an easy year and I, as far as we're concerned and 
And as far as I think everyone, in, you know, in hindsight, eventually will look back and think this was probably the best thing that happened. But um, as far as we're concerned, I look back at the TCB model now and I think actually I could have improved that. And I think there's no legacy now with, with Bossa Nova. I don't, we don't have to do anything a certain way. Um, so we can actually start from a completely clean slate. So I'm not trying to just make um, make this story into something more with a happy ending, but I'm, I'm very happy that I've got this clean slate to deal with because I think we're dealing with very, very different times. And the whole digital world caught up with us much quicker than we thought. So in a way, all the changes that were due to happen in three years have happened in six months. So maybe the model of TCB was sort of a bit outdated and maybe it's time now to sort of move it on. Second most read C21 story this year is TCB was sold without owner's consent or against owner's wishes or something. I can't remember the headline, but it's second only to MIPCOM being cancelled uh, as our in readership at C21 this year. So how really? does a company that is, it was your company, you set it up, you were TCB and you had your team there. How does it end up being sold to somebody else that you don't want it to be like? I just, how did that happen? You know, listen, that's good to know. Second, that's good. At least, I'm a shame I didn't finish top, but it's good to get runners up. And that's probably safe for the year now, isn't it? On the podium, I'll take that now. Uh, a combination of circumstances. How did that happen? Because um, I suppose also um, when these things, when you go into the Canadian courts, it was only I was told late at night that a lot of my emails were going to be going to the public domain. Oh, how I laughed at that when I realized all that correspondence. Well, listen we had we were advised very closely with by insolvency lawyers and all sorts on, on all of this at the time because yeah TCB at the time was was a business and we were steering it we were just steering it into a path that we thought was best for the business and we were at no point at all uh, right up until that moment at no point at all did we ever think right what's best for us as individuals I, I can swear to you 100% we all we were thinking about is right what's best for us as a team of, of individuals I think at the time 17 or 18 people 19 people so what's best for that business uh, what keeps those producers going because you know what what the other thing I was thinking if we if we had have succumbed to to the pressures of the insolvency arm because we were the big target we were the ones that could have been laden down with debt and then the whole group debt would have come onto our shoulders and that was god what was that was that 100 million 150 million so then that would have sunk us if it had sunk us a lot of people would have lost their jobs and their businesses so all we thought about was, can we keep this business going? So yeah, it's no, it's no secret. We thought about the right partner. We wanted the right partner to be able to make the business thrive, to keep everyone's jobs, and to keep uh, and to make sure we weren't going to renege on deals, and we were going to keep contracts contracts going and productions and going. You know, I mean, there's um, the vicissitudes. You know, there's the shows that make money, the shows that lose money. You know, this is this is what distribution is. You know, and if you were if you keep, uh, you know, I'd say that TCB was was year two into a five year plan. In that in that sort of post Q world, it would have been pretty successful, and it already was. But I would have we would have gone on to even bigger profit numbers. I could have seen in the future. So so I, I'm not not answering your question, but you know, basically at that point, we didn't give a shit about who was you know personality wise. This was who is the right partner that's going to invest in this business, that's going to grow the brand, grow something special, keep it going. Look at what we've done before. Look at maybe tightening up. Let's let's have a, a look at everything else. But yeah, that was all that was going through my head. So so Dean and I. Yeah, yeah, wanted that so if we didn't feel that was forthcoming uh, we had to say something so um, I'm glad we did it cost us personally a huge amount of money but I'm pleased we did it beyond not the right partner to in, in your view having re- having read the emails like you say that were part of the court the court document uh, do you still feel like that um, listen um, it's the right partner now yeah for them because we're not there anymore um, it's definitely the right partner so yeah listen uh, it's um, it is the right partner because we're not there anymore I think um, I'm I'm very you know I've got 
a, a lot of friends still there within that team and I sort of uh, I want them to be happy and thrive so yeah I think it is sorry I, I know that's a real cop out of an answer but you know we're not there anymore and so uh, it's a different it's a very different culture and it's a very different business and it's going in a very different direction so for what they wanted to do that's the right they are definitely the right partner it's a very different form of distribution it's not one that, that I subscribe to but there's loads of businesses out there that are very successful that I don't subscribe to but you know uh, what do I know so what's what's the new model for, for Bossa Nova tell me about the new company we wrote about its launch about a month ago and uh, there'll be a, a slate to come in the new year I gather mm. so yeah. what's different what are you going to do differently with this company yeah I just uh, got the opportunity now to work even closer I think as close as we said we wanted to work with producers I still don't think it's close enough now so when you hear a producer say you know I'm about to get I'm about to do a casting reel for this or I'm going to do a sizzle for this or I'm going to get access to these guys why don't you talk to us right now why don't we all as it or I mean you know as a as an industry I think we should as a as a sub industry as distributors I think we should anyway it takes a lot of time and you have to kiss a lot of frogs if you don't mind me using that analogy but you do we have to so the only way for us to breathe oxygen into these guys development slates and to give them the benefit of the data we're accruing that's the thing that's really hitting home is that we've got brilliant data and we've announced a bit later on we're making the sort of first hire we're going to make and the second hire we're going to be using that data properly so when I say data you know talking to those buyers and getting proper in-depth information they are brilliant now I mean they are the platforms out there the buyers out there are giving me absolutely cut glass brilliant feedback which you know I really really cherish and I use it in, in a sparing way because I want to use it with those producers that I think uh, will benefit and so I want to use it right so I'm not wasting the time of the of the broadcasters that are giving me the briefs so then when we go back we're doing the right thing and I want to use it with the right producer but yeah if they want to cross-pollinate some ideas from one genre that they're making into another one I'm all for that and I think history is littered with producers that have made shows in one genre gone on to make it another one in a different style and it's been a hit and I'm interested in that I think that's really interesting not just in unscripted and scripted and but in you know in true crime and in science and engineering and I mean obdocs and you know features and documentaries so I think all of that is worth looking at so as, as we go along with Boston over I'm finding new things that we can do with the platform we've got and there's been a tsunami of goodwill so again it's a terrible um, tragic word to use about something so positive so but I can't use any other words uh, and I'm I'm letting a lot of people down because at the moment we're only three people in the business and so we're covering a lot of ground but we are doing it and it, we are being slow about it but we're getting there and it won't be slow forever and we are going to make an impact I think um, first few weeks I was sort of daunted by this proposition I thought shit I'm gonna have to do this all over again it felt like I was climbing Everest again but then I've been given some really good advice this week about just taking a single step at a time and I think that's that's the right thing because I've done it before and even Cinefix was done doing it again so in a way it's third time lucky uh, but I was lucky the first two times to be fair so that's not fair to say that but uh, you sort of want to make sure that you don't try to put too much pressure on yourself to build another big success because in a way the tsunami of goodwill has all been sort of like wow you guys are going to be great I don't yeah that's lovely to hear and I really appreciate it I can't overestimate how much we do appreciate that goodwill but we've got to take it a step at a time we don't want to try to do everything all at once it doesn't have to be different for the sake of being different either I just want to look at maybe look at the good things we did at TCB look at 
things we didn't do well at TCB and then look at um, look at the industry now. And that's what I think we're doing. That's what I think we're starting to do. I want to look at margins. I want to look at deficits. I want to look at tariffs. I want to talk to broadcasters properly without pitching to them. And I want to say, right, do you want to invest in this series properly? How much can you give? How much does a distributor have to invest? Do you know that this is going to be a returning series? If the answer is yes, do you think that distributor is going to come back and invest that again? So your choice of distributor is crucial. What if you're pushing them so far that they may not get those sales in for the first series? You won't get a season two. Or if you do, you're going to have to give it to another distributor. Then it's a mess. So let's have a think about all of that. So I want to try and look at all of that and extrapolate it out to look at all the genres we're working in now. Look at the Discovery Plus launch, which is, that's also another thing. We have to look at how that model has changed. You know, direct-to-consumer now is everywhere. So the target audiences and everything, I'm not going to, I'm not saying now we're going to be a specialist in the same genres we were before because that may not work. You know, we may have to be broader and deeper. Who knows? Are you, it sounds, as you're talking now, that it's more t- more leaning towards agent fixer than distributor. Is that... Is- no, absolutely not. No, not at all. No, we are. No, we definitely, definitely are a distributor. But I, I want to set out the stall at the beginning. Before, before we get catalogues and shows, which are coming in now, and we've got deals coming in now, I want to set the ground rules that, yes, we're most definitely a distributor because we can't, we can't do it without having a cash flow of that. And I intend to have a sales team. Um, but I think with the advent of smart selling, we may not have to have as, as huge a team as we had before. And maybe we have to look at that. We might do. We might say, listen, it's still worth doing. As I said at the very beginning, producers still want to know that you're really tapping into everything. And with the growth of AVOD now, perhaps you need even more people out there or you have a different way of doing it. Who knows? A different mechanic of making it work. But no, without a shadow of a doubt, we do distribution best. And I think the disciplined, bulletproof back office that we had at TCB was so good. That was so good. And I think I underestimate it principally because I don't really understand it. So, you know, so rights management and finance and contracts and deliverables, marketing, fulfillment, chasing. We were so good. I, I would say we were second to none in our sort of small to medium sector. Yeah, you know, I'll put that out there. I would love to have that as good as it was before. So I think it would be a waste to not have that transplanted into another business. Paul Haney, co-founder of Bottanova Media, talking to Clive Whittingham. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.